Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. My guest is the singer and songwriter Maisie Peters. Maisie signed to Ed Sheeran's Gingerbread Records and this summer she released her first album, You Signed Up For This, which went to number two in the UK album charts. She's been writing songs since she was 12, and since first releasing songs online when she was 17, she's had over half a billion streams worldwide and sold-out live events. Maisie, what's the book you've chosen? I've chosen Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. And it's a lovely edition, this. Tell me about this cover, because to me it speaks, uh, dare I say it, volumes. I know that's a terrible thing to say about a book, but it does. I don't even know how long I've had this copy for. Obviously a long time, it looks fairly battered um it's always been on my bookshelf for as long as I can remember and I grew up loving this book um the cover has got these two lovely shades of pink with a nice white stripe across so you can see puffin classics which is reassuring and this image of obviously a young girl and you can tell she's a young girl because you can see her boots quite clearly obviously by the time she's older she'll have to cover up those legs and her skirt will come right down to her ankles but this has I don't know do you think a degree of sass about the swing of her skirt there's some sass to it. It feels elegant, definitely growing up. I really loved this sort of universe. I loved, like, this woman, I loved what Katie did. I loved this sort of old-time world of women going to balls and going on chaperoned dates and when they would go around Europe. I was just sort of really obsessed with all of that, and I think that image of the sort of the long, lacy sort of skirt that comes out and the little boots would have been very up my street. How old were you when you read it for the first time? I truly, I don't, I couldn't say. Probably, I would imagine like a 10 or 11 probably. I was a big reader, so I probably devoured it fairly quickly and then just read it again a lot. I, there's definitely certain passages that I would read like over and over. Ooh, which ones? I was a sucker for the romance sections and I loved any time they went to like a ball. I would always read that. But I also, there was, I think the sisterhood in this book is obviously the main thing that everyone talks about and remembers and, I think that there's some things that I remember so clearly. It's it's Amy putting Joe's manuscripts in the fire, Amy falling through the ice, Mommy helping that family who get all really sick, and then Beth getting really sick. I just there's it's the main things I think that you take away from this are the sisterhood and the girls together. Can I just take you back though, just briefly, to to where you were when you were reading? Describe where was it in your bedroom? Did you have a special little nook place that you used to go to, or was it just wherever your book was? Growing up in the bedrooms sort of that I was in from probably nine to eighteen, there was um there was like a radiator in my bedroom, and I had a cushion on the floor, and I used to sit. I guess it was pretty cold. I used to sit like with my back against the radiator on this little cushion, like all cr- like crouched up. Um, and I would read there a lot. 
books, but also as I was sort of, I would read all the time. So I would, yeah, read on buses and in the car. And I remember my parents would have to like come in and I would be reading when it would be past my bedtime and I would like try and hide and like read under the covers and they would have to confiscate the book. It was very dramatic. They actually took the book away. They would sometimes take the book away. Ooh, hush. Very savage. Did you have to share that bedroom? No, I have a twin sister actually, but we shared until we were probably like seven and then we were separated. Oh, dream. I shared with my sister till later than that. So Not ideal. Not ideal. I don't know if me and my sister would both be alive if that was um if that was the case. <laughs> don't need crack first. <laughs> Not me. And um, when you reread it this time, presumably there's been a little bit of a gap between mm. reading it when you were a child and reading it now. What what did you feel about it? Did you get straight back to you, Maisie, reading it when you were a little girl? Or do you have a slightly different perspective? Hmm. I think there's an element of both. So you do, you're immediately transported where you were and who you were when you read something, I always find. But I think as, yeah, as now, like sort of a young adult, I'm 21 now, there's a lot of different parts to this book that you really sort of latch onto a lot more than you than I maybe did when I was growing up and when I was a very little girl. But I immediately felt, as soon as I started reading it again, I actually wrote, because I um, have a book club, so I post little things and I love writing in books because I think it's like a nice memento. And I wrote, I effing love this book. <laughs> oh. Because I do, like you start reading it and it's just an immediate sort of warmth, I feel like, and like life and love that you that comes off the pages. Do you turn down the corners of the pages too? Yes, Me I too. do. That's, yeah. Yeah, I write in books as well. I think writing in books is lovely. I would love to get a book and be reading it and there's a little note in the things. I have no issue. No, me neither. Do it underlining as well. I love Absolutely. And it's such a connection. When I've done it with this, you can see, look at all my little post-it notes and, and they are there because there are passages in the book which either have immediate, immediate sort of relevance or they're a connection or they're so indicative of the character. And I think that's why I want to go back and have a look. So do you ever read on a, on a Kindle style thing or is it always a physical book? No, I always read on in physical books. I just, I think I just like the sort of weight to them and I like traveling with them. So no, I'm, I'm very much a physical book person. Did you move around as a child or did you stay in the same place when you were at home? Uh, so I moved around a little bit, but from the age of about 10 to 18, I was in the same house in like a little village um, in the countryside. So maybe that's also why I love Little Women so much, because it is also feels like village living and they know all their neighbours and you sort of get to know everyone in the town. And I feel like that was sort of my life as well. Yeah. Well, that's what, one of your songs I really love is the one about this is the place that made us. I that, I just... That had such resonance to me. I thought that's an extraordinary thing for you to know already that whatever happens to you in life, you come back to that point. Oh, thank you. That's nice. Um, yeah, I think so. And I, I sort of, I wrote that song when I was leaving um, that town. So I think it was sort of me, sort of, I guess it was foresight of knowing that it was going to be a place we made as we were leaving. And I was really desperate to leave, but I guess I knew enough to know that those places are always the most important. There's a sort of pre-nostalgia, isn't there? Yes. For something that you know you're leaving. Predicting the yeah. nostalgia. Yeah, really. And how, how did this book come to you? Did you buy your own books or was this a present from someone? Can you remember? It was probably a present. I imagine it was probably a present from my mum because I think I was, too, I was too young to have bought it of my own accord. 
Did they give you lots of books? Yes, they did. I used to read, as I was just such a big reader, I would read anything and everything. And my parents were very um, cool and they would just sort of give me free reign of the house bookshelf. So I definitely read some very inappropriate things. But this, and as I said, like what Katie did and that sort of world, my mum would give me and I think she read them as well growing up. So it's like a nice pass through. And then confiscate them. And then would confiscate them, yes. Yes. (laughs) When you were reading it, were you in the book? Were you one of the girls? Or do you have a sort of overview that you're kind of all of them, do you think? The great question uh, is which little women, a girl are you? (laughs) Everybody wants to be Jo, um, but everyone that wants to be Jo is actually an Amy. So... Uh, No, I think I felt like I was one of them. I think you do. That's the joy of the book is that you feel like you're in that family. And I don't think I've read as many books as this one that you feel like you know those characters so well. I can't think of many books where I feel so, so profoundly like connected to everyone in the book. I think you are absolutely spot on about the Joe and Amy thing because Joe is always viewed as the sort of main protagonist, isn't she? You know, and she in in broad brush terms, um, this is how the book starts, that you're aware that Meg, the eldest, is, is, you know, these are their worst characteristics. Meg, Meg is the vain one, Joe hot-headed, Beth very shy, and Amy materialistic. Joe's actions and what happens to her and the way she responds most closely correspond to Louisa May Alcott's life herself, particularly, obviously, the writing. But I think she's more Amy. Amy Amy's the one, to me, who becomes... I mean, in a way, she's the, the the most bravely written because she's not very likable. The others have an inherent sweetness about them and are able to demonstrate that really clearly very early on. I mean, it's obvious with Meg, Beth, obviously, it goes without saying because she, her, her whole trajectory is an arc of sweetness. And even Jo, although she is hot-headed, you know, sells her hair to fund her mother's trip. But Amy is sort of the one with um, the through line, really, isn't she, to womanhood, I don't know. Maybe that's just reading it now. I don't suppose I thought that then. I think 100%. I think when I read it as an adult and also when you sort of, I saw the film that came out a few years ago that I thought was really beautifully done. And I actually remember seeing the original film as well. It's all very intrinsically tied together. But when, I think when you read it as an adult, for me, Amy, yeah, I do feel like a really like kindred spirit connection with her. You're right. I think she is the character with the most, the, the most flaws written that aren't sort of like wrapped up neatly with a bow because I would argue that the other three even Joe who obviously has the temper and you know has have moments in this book is still quite clearly I would say like the protagonist and she's the writer and she's the the ringleader and Teddy's in love with her and it's all of this and then you have Amy oh my goodness and Amy falling through the ice getting hit on the knuckles because she um the pickled limes because she's yeah, yeah the limes and I think that I, you just feel such a sort of connection, I think, as an adult to Amy and to that feeling. She's always, she's trying really hard and she's just not always on the money. Yeah, no, it's a very outside in view of it. But I, I wondered whether Louisa May just felt she was the one she was sort of cheering on in a way. She's the one, you know, on, on the page, she is selfish and headstrong and and does things that are not cool. But on the other hand, she learns from it, very obviously learns from it. And it's just, I've again, like you remember so vividly when Jo thinks she's going to go to Italy and then it's Amy instead. And you would just remember that moment of, it's like so much pain because you feel so connected to these sisters. And when there's like a wedge between them, I think you really feel it as well as the reader. Because their world is... is um, 
almost impossible to imagine now, really, mm. isn't it? That sort of lack of agency. And although obviously the, the parents are keen that the girls learn things, they're also, you know, they take Amy out of school immediately and the older two, it doesn't really feature for them because they kind of can't afford it. And then Beth has to give up school because she's not well. So the, the line of their education is definitely a rather wonky one. Now, you probably noticed that we're actually talking about a lot of the content of the successful sequels to Little Women, which included Good Wives and Joe's Boys, because it's inevitable. A lot of the time it's pushed together in the various film adaptations, but also I think anyone reading Little Women goes on to find out what happens to the March girls. Weirdly enough, Louisa May Alcott, you know, she wrote this to order. It was not her idea to write this book at all because she was writing quite um, racy novels. And her publisher said to her, just write about being a young girl. And she described it as plodding. She was not enjoying the process at all. But she used what we'd now call a focus group. She gave it, and her publisher did, to a couple of, of girls they knew who were the right sort of age without changing anything. And they loved it and they wanted more. So she obviously then understood that she was writing almost automatic writing about what it felt like to be those girls. So in a way it comes across, doesn't it? Because she wrote it quickly as well. I think she wrote it in 10 weeks. It's a really, it's a really quick scamper that she's discovering who they are as she writes, which I think is one of the things that really attaches you to the book, isn't it? A hundred percent. I didn't know that either, but it, it makes a lot of sense. And I almost like in the way that it was it was really written like for those girls, you know, it's written for order for those girls who were reading it. And it is, it's so, again, when you read it as an adult, I think you read it with like a sort of warm sense of nostalgia and for remembering that as a young girl, it was like, oh my God, like this is exactly it in a weird way, even though it was, you know, hundreds of years before. To be devil's advocate for a minute here, um, their choice of men was pretty limited. So they tend to fall in love with whoever's nearest, don't they? I always had an Basically. issue with that. I always had an issue with Meg and her and her marriage. Very unfair to look at it through um, a feminist twenty twenty one lens. Nevertheless, very unfair <laughs> to Louise May Alcott. Um, but hmm, it's two sides to it. I do remember actually, almost ahead of its time. Meg says to Joe in the book, "Just because my choices aren't your choices, doesn't make them less valid." When Meg's talking about settling down and getting married to. I can't even remember his name. That's how nondescript her husband is. <laughs> John. John. Um, yes. Yes. And I think that's actually very ahead of its time. And I sort of, there was a, there's a respect for Meg in that, but it feels like, yeah, it's a, it, that is when, I think that Meg is the character and that storyline is the one where you most clearly are jolted back into whatever year this is. And yeah, her marriage to John and their children and the way that Meg sort of, you feel like, and I think Joe sees it as well, and you're seeing it through Joe's eyes, but Meg was part of the acting troupe and she was Joe's sort of right-hand man. And then suddenly she's a housewife and she's a mother. And I do feel like that is, there's a sadness to that, that you, that you feel more reading as an adult. 1868 it was, in fact. And when she was asked what it was about, uh, Louise Melcott said it's about domesticity, work and true love. Yeah, I would, I can, I can see that. I don't know who's in true love, though. In this yeah, book. true love. Yeah. Yeah, because spoiler alert, everybody, um, Laurie, who's particularly keen on Joe, does not end up with Joe. Mm-hmm. And, and the way that it all transfers, obviously, if you've seen the film, you absolutely know this, um, speaks of, of a way she wanted to resolve those girls' lives in the way actually she never married, in a way that her own life 
didn't resolve. Do you think it's quite a young response to being in love? Hmm. No, because I think it would have been easier for Joe and Laurie to get married. The fact that Joe doesn't just go, oh, you're right, Laurie, I do love you. Um, and is steadfast in saying, you know, it's, you're a brother to me and that's not how I feel. And then, yeah, Laurie sort of, uh, marriage to Amy, which is also iconic. Um, and almost, it reads as like a soap opera when you talk about it that loud. But no, I would say there's, there's definitely a sort of like a, in, a young person's infatuation in this book with sort of the romances, like with almost like capital R. But by the end of it, I think that it's not as straightforward as it could have been. The four March girls, Meg, Joe, Beth and Amy, are with their mommy, called Mommy in the book, on their own because their father has had to go away and he's away for the, pretty much the whole book. Um, so he's an absent but present father in that they all adore him and at one point he falls ill, Mommy has to go to him and it's absolutely a given that she will go and that the girls will have to fend for themselves. So they are absolutely bound up in each other's lives. And again, because they are, they're taken out of school, the two older girls are tutoring, but they're pretty much at home. So the, the image of the home and family life and sisterhood is absolutely at the core of this, no matter how far they roam, no matter where in Europe they visit, no matter who else they encounter. So their world is, is like, it's almost like a little snow globe, isn't it? They're, they're the characters and occasionally they get shaken up and things happen around them. But you always come back to this core of family. Did that resonate with you? Is that how you feel about your own family? Obviously, I'm aware that your family may listen to this, but uh -huh. you know, nevertheless... Yes, I think so. I think I have twin sister. Um, and so I think I sort of have always loved um, books about sisters on sisters. Um, and I would say that actually growing up, we're a lot closer now as adults as we were growing up. I think being a twin is great, but it can also be very difficult. So it's like a warm, engaging image that this family unit that's so tight and that's, and they're so sweet to each other. And yeah, mommy is like sort of almost reading it now. It's almost sort of slightly vomit inducing. Like <laughs> the um, she's, you know, patron saint of everything that's good and right in this world. Um, and actually, I would say, yeah, when Beth is ill and that whole section, which is so sad. So sad. Um, but it's yeah, it's really sort of you just want to be in that family. Yeah, because mommy, when I know when I read it as a child, I imagined her more as a sort of almost grandmother figure. Yes. She isn't an ancient mother at all. But she, as you say, she is absolutely everyone's mother. But don't you love that bit? I'm putting words in your mouth here. But don't you love that bit when Joe has had yet another terrible episode? She's very upset. And her mother admits to her that she has that temper too and she reigns it in. Yes. And it's, yeah, I mean, that's also very of its time because... That whole conversation, if you, if you sort of read it now, it's really just Joe saying that she's ambitious and that she wants things and that she doesn't know how to... Yeah, Joe's sort of greatest weakness, which arguably isn't a weakness of now, it was then, was that she wanted too many things and she didn't know how to have it all. And I think Mommy's saying the same thing, actually just to me is very sad because it's just these two women saying that they had bigger dreams than maybe their station where they were in life and... It's basically saying you can't have that, so you need to learn how to rein it in. Yeah. Which is actually really sad and something that I don't think I would have clocked when I first read it. It's not the American message now, is it? I mean, this this was always hailed as 
the first vision of the all-American girl, mm. you know, that she encapsulates every single good character trait of the March sisters. Mm. But nowadays, certainly in the States, and I think here too, people are encouraged to think beyond, think beyond those. Nothing limits you, you mm. know, think big and go for it. And heaven knows, Maisie, you're a pretty good example of that, you know, that it, we're encouraged not to think this is where I am. They're very defined by particularly financial constraints, mm. but to a certain extent by the mores of the time. So they have to accept where they are. And you can feel, even even Meg thinking, mm. is this it? Which is a sort of precursor, isn't it, mm. to the feminist movement? I mean, it's quite weird to hear it articulated in 1868 and know that, you know, nothing much is going to happen for quite a long time. Definitely. And... Um- you know, Joe's really the only character that I think actively pushes those constraints. There's not really anybody in this book, and I think if it was written maybe, you know, 50 years later, there would have been a character. It's not really anybody that goes, you can, like you can do those things. Maybe Laurie to Joe, maybe. Um, and maybe the grandfather to Beth, when Beth starts playing piano for the grandfather across the street. But yeah. There's no one who's ever sort of it pushes them to to dream bigger. And I think that that would be a very different book. Yeah, and even as you're saying that, that's still the male view, isn't it? It that, is, that yeah. That comes from two men saying, you know, hey, little lady, nothing yeah. to stop you doing you this. You can do more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. actually, Louisa May Alcott was the first woman to register to vote in Concord when, when she was allowed to. She was also a fervent abolitionist and, you know, campaigning against slavery. So she was um, proto-feminist. She was a feminist, you know, mm. she was. So she obviously was aware of these constraints and yet did not have the agency to get beyond it. I, I wonder what she would make of this book still being loved by girls now. Yes, interesting. It is, because obviously that's not, she didn't think it had much life beyond her publisher suggesting it and these girls that she gave it to loving it. But then, of course, it became her life. You know, she wrote Good Wives, she wrote Joe's Boys, she wrote, I think mm. there's even a book called Eight Cousins or something. <laughs> she, she was a little industry to do with the marches and what happened next. Is there, is there anything that um, surprises you now in the book? Or is it all so familiar that it can't take you by surprise anymore? I really am now, like, seeing the ceiling that they're all under, this whole book. Really sad that Joe's really the only one that in any way sort of steps out of that world. The queer feeling did not pass away, but she imagined herself acting the new part of a fine lady and so on pretty well. Though the tight dress gave her a side ache, the train kept getting under her feet, and she was in constant fear lest her earrings should fly off and get lost or broken. She was flirting her fan and laughing at the feeble jokes of a young gentleman who tried to be witty when she suddenly stopped laughing and looked confused, for just opposite she saw Laurie. He was staring at her with undisguised surprise and disapproval also, she thought, for though he bowed and smiled, yet something in his honest eyes made her blush and wish she had her old dress on. So it's, it's a really hard read too. The bit that upset me the most going back to it was when Meg is staying with the rich family and they dress her up. And she looks at herself in the mirror and kind of doesn't recognize herself. And one of the things, it's a really telling detail, is that she's wearing a low-cut dress and she would never normally do that. And then they put jewellery on, which obviously accentuates. So she doesn't feel like herself. And 
Laurie is at this event. She's being dressed up for a ball and Laurie is there. And he kind of goes, who who, who do you think you are dressed like that? I thought, oh my gosh, that idea of not being yourself, but being someone else's version of you is, is kind of being a teenager, isn't it? Mm. You know, who, when you're a teenager, you're a lot closer to it than me, but when you're a teenager, broadly, it's about thinking either everyone's looking at me or no one is, you know, there's not much between those. Meg is a little bit older, but she's still in her teens. And she has that moment of thinking, is this who I am? And then Mm. gets sort of roundly knocked back. Yes, I was actually thinking about that. That's another moment that I really remember. And what's so, yeah, it's sort of hilarious and tragic because I think when you first read that, you side with Laurie. You're like, Meg, (laughs) what are you doing? Take off the low-cut dress. Go back to mommy. Go back to the kitchen, which is hysterical. Um, And yet, I always really remember that. And it's, you feel this sort of embarrassment and the pain of, her being with those girls and and now uh, you think that's outrageous like Meg is a young woman and should be allowed to go and have fun with her friends and wear whatever she wants and it is really amusing that it's just that freedom to be yourself you know you could come in here in a ball mm. gown today and you know it would be your look and nobody would say go home and change you know that's we do have that sort of mm. remarkable freedom to advertise who we are just for a moment I was thinking about when Meg and Joe have to share a glove for a dance. And I think a character trait that's made out to be the most admirable is sacrifice in this book. And Joe can't sacrifice. That's her fatal flaw. And Amy can't really sacrifice, I don't think. And that's her fatal flaw. And Beth can. Beth is constantly sacrificing all the time. And that's why Beth is like the, the holy child of goodness and grace. That is, that's very much of its time because nowadays life is what you make of it and it's your future and your life and very sort of individualist and take what you can. And it's interesting that this book wholly centers around giving things to others, which is a really like admirable message, but it feels like, and I'm sure that was the era of it, but Louisa May Alcott is essentially telling women that yeah, sacrifice is how you show people you love them and how you should conduct yourself as a young woman, which feels very dated and sad when you sort of look at it. Yeah, and the idea of a kind of performative goodness. Yes. Do we want to do really good deeds in the dark? Is that is that what the girls are being asked to do? And actually they're not. They're being asked to demonstrate constantly. Yes. Because poverty is a constant theme and a constant sore with always the possibility that there may be money somewhere, that if you marry well or mm. if somebody's kind to you or if you're, you know, helpful to an old woman then the money will be your reward too, which which actually is a bit of a dichotomy in terms of what she's asking her readers to do, which is to be a total sacrifice all the time, with certainly in my case, no prospect of anyone giving me loads of dosh for it. Yes, un- unreasonable actually. Yeah, and really, yeah, yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I read somewhere that you, you said you had magpie tendencies, that you kind of collect what people are saying or things you overhear or stuff you might have read. Do you then want to weave them into a story? Does it resonate as a story? Yes, definitely. I think I really write songs as miniature stories. I think I sort of grew up reading so much and the music that I love is so sort of narrative based that there are the characters and you set the scene and who is everybody to each other and how are you describing everyone and how are you showing that to people in as minimum words as possible. I'm always on a low burn, very low burn, sort of have an eye out for things that could be useful because I write songs that are based in real life and I have like a conversational tone. The more things that have come out of things that people have actually said, the better. Um, so all the time, I have a long list of uh, on my phone that dates back years and years. And anytime anyone says anything interesting, um, or even the phrase, turn of phrase could be nice, or they'll say something to me that's sort of really in any way striking, I'll write it down. Um, and then I might end up using it for something that's not even about what they were saying or not about that person or whatever. But I'm, yeah, I definitely do. I just take little pieces all the time and then it's always really interesting what you use later on and what comes back in. Are you aware then, ever so slightly, when things are happening to you, even if they're not great, that somewhere there's a song here? Yes, but I would say that personally, it's not always... I know some people that it is exactly as black and white as that, as in they will experience something and then they will write it out and it's sort of almost that way around it's one one two one two one two whereas for myself I write a lot but it's not necessarily I can something can happen that's like very dramatic or sort of very emotional and I will never write about it and then something a series of things could happen that were entirely uneventful and I'll write 15 songs about it because something about it is more capturing to me I think it I'm someone that it's sort of, yeah, it's just not as black and white. So it, it, it really depends on the moment and on how I feel about it and if I know how I feel about it. Because I think if you know how you feel about something, it's less, you want to write about it less. I've always found if I was in any way, like happy in a stable way, I really tended to write about it very little because there's no questions. There's nothing you want to unpack or understand. And so for me, my mind doesn't, need to sort of write it out like that so they say happiness writes white yes <laughs> I, I think so but also I'm yeah there's there's levels to that <laughs> happiness is very inspiring but there needs to be something that you're wondering in that state I think if you're just wholly stable that's more difficult to write about gosh thank you ever so much for taking us back to it though been such a joyful revisiting. I'm glad. And it does stand the test of time. It does. I would say so. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. My guest was Maisie Peters. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton, and Twice Upon a Time is a hat trick podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.